Welcome back for some bonus content from the Kickstarter Games podcast. Earlier this month, Luke and Anya interviewed Frank Lance of the game Hey Robot, which successfully funded on Kickstarter just a little while back. So today we've got roughly the last third of their interview for you to listen to. Luke and Anya go a little more in-depth into Frank's career, respective fears of technology out of control, and what it takes for a young person to succeed in games today. You know, you've made a lot of games. You've made a lot of different types of games. And, um... You've made some very successful games. I'm trying. I'm bad at economic engine games, but here I have. I've been playing uh, Universal Paperclips today mm. and as research preparation yeah. for for the interview. But yeah. one of the things I guess that um, that you said about this game was that the meme weather was good to me. Yeah. So Universal Paperclips is the game I made a couple of years ago about. AI safety, I guess, or the sort of thought experiment that comes out of Nick Bostrom's work, the philosopher Nick Bostrom, um, which is sometimes uh, described as the as the, the 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 value alignment problem, the idea that we might invent a super powerful artificial intelligence, but its utility function, which determines its goal and mm-hmm. what Mm-hmm. activity it pursues might be completely orthogonal to ours. We mm-hmm. might accidentally, it's like the, like having a genie, right? When you have a genie and you get a wish and then the fulfillment of your wish is technically what you asked for, right. but it's some terrible catastrophic thing that you don't actually want. Right, right, right. right? So Nick Bostrom's thought experiment was that could happen with a super powerful AI. You could have a very powerful AI, but it's goal could be to pursue some ridiculous thing that we don't want, but it's very efficient and very effective because it's so intelligent. It's very good at at achieving this goal, but its goal might be to completely destroy the the earth or the entire universe. Yeah. So that was uh, what I explored. And I think, um, and it kind of, yeah, it kind of took off. It's a very simple game. It's a, it's a clicker and, and uh, runs in a browser and there's basically no graphics, uh, but it did, it, it sort of caught on and, and people played it and were excited about it. And, and yeah, I think the, the, the meme weather was the fact that this was an idea that was floating around. Like this is a, this is an ongoing debate mm-hmm. that people who study computers and artificial intelligence and philosophers and technologists are still, it's kind of this unresolved question. Mm-hmm. And so, but there's also, most people have n- not heard of it, right? Mm-hmm. So though, even though like, you know, Elon Musk and, and, um, and Lizzie Yudkowsky and, and uh, um, Peter Thiel and, and all these other, you know, people are kind of like debating this, this issue. Um, most people still haven't encountered it. And so for many people, their first kind of exposure to, to the, the, uh, to the thought experiment, uh, of a paperclip maximizer is, is through the game. And so, so it has, um, it was, it had the element of surprise. So a lot of people, I thought when people started playing it, they would get right, they would, they would see that it was a game where you're an AI that's making paperclips and they'd be like, oh, okay, I get where this is going. 
But I think for a lot of people, they didn't. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it, it was able to be like this weird surprise when it takes you down that road and you encounter this idea uh, and it kind of grows exponentially and ends up in this weird kind of metaphysical place. Mm -hmm. For a lot of people, that was kind of this weird, mind-blowing experience. And so I think it was just the right level of, of um, familiarity in the, in the cultural landscape that enough people knew about it and then um, enough people didn't know about it, but then they, dis they, they learned about it and then wanted to pass it on to someone else. Oh, you should play this game because it's so weird and surprising. Um, but yeah, yeah. So that was. Uh, I mean, that I can't. Was fun. I can't help but see the link in that both uh, Hey Robot and this game toy with AI. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, it, I didn't see the link until recently, uh, but then of course it occurred to me. Oh yeah, the, the games I'm making now are about artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. and I think I just, I think I'm really interested in AI as a topic, which I, I wasn't. To, I didn't realize. I didn't realize that it wasn't conscious, right? I didn't think, oh, I'm going to set out to make a bunch of games about AI, uh, but um, but I have, and I and I think looking back on it now, I realize, oh yeah, I I'm really interested in this. I think it's one of the most interesting things happening on the planet right now, artificial intelligence, and uh, and I'm also now realizing, oh, maybe I've always been interested in this, and I just kind of didn't. No, it's like I remember one of the earliest books that I read that had a huge impact on me was Godel Escherbach, this book by Douglas Hofstadter, who is a computer scientist and a very early kind of AI researcher. And it had a huge impact on me. And I read it when I was like 14, 15 hmm. years old. And, and then over time, I've always been interested in some of these the more theoretical end of, of artificial intelligence, like pattern and mind information and consciousness and these larger issues. Uh, and then recently, I think AI has started to become more and more present in our landscape. Uh, there are all these new kinds of emerging techniques, machine learning and deep learning. And, and I'm looking around and realizing, oh, yeah, this is something that's happening in a it may be one of the most interesting things that's happening right now uh, in the world and i want to make games that respond to my historical time sure. like I, that's part of what i am about as a game designer as like i want to i want to be present in the in my historical moment and like and active and responding and using games to engage with ideas and and things that are happening uh and so yeah, so I've, I've just, like, just stumbled into having this be a, a theme now in my work, and I'm really excited about it. The, the other side of, of paperclips, and, I, and honestly, you know, thinking about this now, like to, to a lesser extent, Hey Robot, though, is that in, in, you know, in being that game designer that's engaging with your, your historical time, and in this case, engaging with uh, the question of artificial intelligence, but you, like you're engaging in this way by asking a philosophical question or exploring a philosophical question, um, I guess, which, you know, isn't typical, isn't your typical way that you it, it, like would go with a, kind of a post-apocalyptic AI game or like, you know, a browser clicker. Yeah. Um, yeah. For, for Universal Paperclips, it started out as just an exercise in programming because mm -hmm. I am not a great programmer. 
I had a couple of years ago, I thought, you know what, I'm going to sit down and make a game by myself. Usually I collaborate with good programmers and, sure. <laughs> and I uh, am a little, I'm a capable of writing code, but I'm not at all good. But I thought, you know, I want to sit down and write a game from start to finish by myself to see if I can do it. And I thought, oh, I'll make a clicker game because I was playing clicker games at the time. And I thought they were kind of great and interesting and kind of underappreciated. And uh, I was, I was uh, playing a game called The Kittens Game. I don't know if you've seen this, but this is my, my favorite uh, clicker game. It's called The Kittens Game. As, yeah, crazy Russian programmer. Um, but in any event, I thought, oh, this will, I could maybe bust this out in a weekend. Mm -hmm. and, and then I thought of this theme because I had just read Nick Bostrom's book. Uh, in which the the paperclip maximizer thought experiment is is sketched out, and is something I was already aware of, and and I instantly thought, and I thought of the title, and I thought, oh my god, this is so perfect! This is such a great fit of theme and 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 experience, mm. um, because I thought the 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 premise of of Bostrom's argument is that it's possible to be very very smart. And still have a, just an arbitrary goal. That's, sure. that's the orthogonality thesis. That's what he calls it, orthogonality. In the sense that you can be incredibly smart in terms of being cognitively efficient, capable of achieving your goals. And your goal could be completely arbitrary, just ridiculous, something stupid. Now, it's not obvious that this is true. And some of the arguments against Bostrom are that, no, 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 if you're really smart, what it means to be really smart is also to have a kind of thoughtful goal in mind, to have a thoughtful intention. You can't be a, a genius level, you know, intelligence and want something stupid to, to happen, right? To, 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 to apply your intelligence in this direction of just doing something idiotic, like painting the whole world purple or some arbitrary goal, right? And Boston's saying, no, you definitely can have that. <laughs> and, and it's an unsettled philosophical question. But in my mind, I, I tend to agree with Boston because I look at like, like the military, to me, uh, the army, the military is a great example of something that is very efficient at achieving its goals, but not something that you, what its goal is somewhat arbitrary. Like you, you would not want the army to be deciding, you know, what it should be doing, right? <laughs> uh, but the army, like Napoleon is very, very, very good at achieving his goals, but I don't want Napoleon in charge of deciding what to do. Or for another example is, you're just garden variety psychopath, right? Uh, Hannibal Lecter is incredibly smart at achieving his goals, but his goal is just over here orthogonal to what common sense and common decency would say a human goal should be. It's to like skin and eat a person, right? Sure. And so to me, and I know that Hannibal Lecter is not a real person, so maybe it's a dubious <laughs> evidential power in this argument, but, but, but yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so. So I, I thought when you play a game, you experience this firsthand because when you play a good game that has you in its grips, you feel what it's like to give yourself over fully and apply yourself completely to an arbitrary goal. Mm -hmm. to yeah. making a number go up. Now, you don't want a number. Who cares about a number? You know, you know the cookies in Cookie Clicker aren't real, right? Yeah. You can't eat them. Like, you know that exactly. as a conscious person. But once you submit to the 
the the the sort of artificial motivation of a game which is what you know that you have to do to make the game go right we understand what it's like to play a game it means to pretend to want the goal of the game once you slip into that it can take over fully that's that that's what the experience of being inside a game is like so i thought this is perfect because it'll give people firsthand experience of this philosophical perspective right uh, here's a here's a very abstract philosophical idea the orthogonality thesis mm -hmm. but here's a concrete firsthand palpable experience that people can get that will help them understand intuitively what that might mean and for me that's exciting because i love the idea of games participating in culture like being like having something to say about a philosophical idea mm -hmm. uh it, not, and not just as expression, not just like, oh, here's my perspective on war. I think war is bad. And so I'm going to make a game that says war is bad, right? I think it's, or I think it's bad to destroy all value <laughs> in the universe, right? And I'm going to make a game that says, no, uh, the, to me, the interesting thing about, okay, here's a way in which a game as a piece of culture can participate in an actual ongoing philosophical debate in a way that isn't just advocating for something, but is somehow demonstrating or as it's itself a kind of it participates in a way that like gives people a new perspective on this argument i hope right um and so once i yeah once that entered my mind as a creative goal now i can make this thing into a a thought experiment that you are inside of and that you get firsthand experience of then it, it took over my life and I was so, and then I couldn't do it in a weekend. It ended up taking me like, you know, nine months to, to make <laughs> also because I'm a terrible programmer, <laughs> so, um, so you kept, but I kept adding to it. You know, once it's, once it took on a life of its own, I just kept adding to it. Did you continue to do research throughout the process or was it like this, you know, this bell chiming at the beginning where you like the, the vision laid out oh, before you? No, for sure. I wanted because I wanted universal paperclips to be a work of science fiction because mm -hmm. I grew up reading science fiction. I still read science fiction. I, I have a deep love of it. And mm -hmm. I wanted this to work as good, smart, interesting science fiction. And to me, a big part of making that work is the texture of it should be truthful and interesting in its relationship to the science. And so it's full of like weird extraneous details about how this stuff is happening. And each one of those is like a little rabbit hole that I at least stuck a toe into, you know, um, and, and half of it is like stuff that I researched and then stuff that I made up and extrapolated from um, spectral froth annealment as, yeah, yeah. you know, like these different kinds of like half of that is actual mechanical processes that I think are going that are on the verge of being possible and then half of them are just like words that sound good that i put in there um but yeah it's a it's a it's a lot of it's a mix and and so yeah designing that game was an excuse for me to do a lot of research into into math and engineering and science uh the the Toth sausage conjecture is a thing that I touch on in universal paperclips and uh yeah, swarm computing and there's a lot of uh, each one of those was um, based in some kind of uh, actual research. Right. So. You really see those touches come up as texture as you're playing. It's not just purely the game mechanical value of what's happening. It's, wait, 
what do I really want a Toth sausage conjecture? Like, of course you, you do. I yeah. Well, <laughs> who doesn't want to solve the Toth sausage conjecture? Uh, I guess if so. You could. <laughs> if I could, I really want the spectral froth annealment, but I'm yeah. I, I I gotta get my ops up. Um, yeah. <laughs> And then I guess, I, I, honestly, I, I just one note about this is um, to come down from the heights of philosophy there for a second is no monetization for this, right? Well, I, you may have missed the little uh, link in the upper right-hand corner that takes you to the gift shop. To the <laughs> that is where you can uh, buy a T-shirt or a mug. Uh, and there's also, I, I think, a link, a link there to the uh, to the iPhone version and the Android version, which also I don't know, cost a dollar ninety nine or something. Okay. Um, so those are the ways that the, that the game generates uh, revenue. Uh, but no, the game, it's the the browser version of the game. Yeah, there's there's no there's no banner ads. There's no uh, Bitcoin mining going on in the background. <laughs> there's no uh, we don't listen to you and, and serve up uh, Netflix specials that we think you might enjoy. Uh, there's nothing. Um, it's just you in the game. And uh, yeah, which was intentional. I mean, I wanted to make something small and accessible and right. free that runs in a browser. Uh, and it's part of, I think, the, the experience of it is that it's uh, so bare bones. Right. Yeah. Should I uh, go for algorithmic trading here, develop an investment engine for generating funds, or quantum <laughs> computing, uh, use probability amplitudes to generate bonus ops? So I don't think I'm going to shock you when I say you should get everything. <laughs> it's one of those. It's not a game. There are no uh, choices that preclude other. Well, there are a couple of along the way. Uh, but almost everything you can do in the game just improves your – that's what a clicker – to my mind, part of the aesthetics of a clicker game mm -hmm. are the feeling of having this little engine that's running. And you can optimize it and improve it, but there's very little you can do to make it worse. So you just click on stuff, and as you click on things, it gets better. <laughs> and of course, there's – the difference between optimal play and suboptimal is huge. And there are people who speed run this game who have it down to a science, and it matters quite a great deal which order you get those things in. Mm -hmm. And you should get quantum computing first. But <laughs> uh, but in most cases, it just it's, you're playing it casually. It doesn't matter. It's just like you get whatever you want whenever you want. And then it's fun to like, oh, I bet I could make this happen a little bit better. And like just tinkering with it to optimize it. That's what I enjoy mm -hmm. about these games. It's just that feeling of messing with something and making it better over time. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. God, speedrunning a clicker game is, that's just next level. It's, it's surprising so how, crazy. yeah, how hardcore this little mm -hmm. genre is, oh, even yeah. though it's super casual mm -hmm. and um, it's also, there are a lot of, there's one guy that I watch on Twitch who um, his main game is Go. Uh, so I watch him because he streams Go, competitive, uh, high level Go. And then the other game that he uh, plays is Cookie Clicker. <laughs> and so sometimes he's so playing Go, this very cerebral, very fancy, uh, you know, th thousands of years old uh, strategy game. And then uh, occasionally he's speedrunning Cookie Clicker, uh, which I just, yeah, I like stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Surprising juxtapositions. I mean, one thing I just love about humans is that we are just contradictions, right? They're just like, yeah. human beings. No, we're not. <laughs> uh, did you pay for the argument, sir? <laughs> so we're uh, nearing the end of our hour. It's been uh, a pretty amazing conversation, but I did. I wanted to touch back uh, just on the other part of your career that we haven't really talked about, and the uh, just education-wise, uh, just to, uh, just in terms of 
talking to, um, you, you know, you talk to a lot of young, hopeful game designers out there in the world. And so I think it's really interesting to hear you talk as a game designer and about something that you're very passionate about. And, and not just like the, the game itself, not just the mechanism, uh, uh, you know, one of the mechanisms of the design, but to talk about the, the moment of inspiration the mechanical inspiration of like, oh, I want to learn how to do this game design thing. And then marrying that with research inspiration, like the conceptual inspiration. As I said, you talk to a lot of young game designers. How do you, like, how do you guide a process like that? How, you know, how do you point somebody down that path? I think it's just a matter of putting yourself in a position for it to happen. I, I think of it as just getting at bats. You just got to get up, at, <laughs> you get up to the plate and swing at the ball a bunch, and occasionally you're going to hit it, and then once in a while you're going to hit it out of the park. And so it's important to just get up to the plate over and over again and swing. And every time you swing, you swing for the fences, right? Hmm. Everything you do, every project you work on. Work on it with the understanding that it might just whiff entirely, but there's always a chance that this is the one that is going to go out of the park, right? And so do it with that level of attention and care. Like this one might be the one that goes down in the history books, every <laughs> single project you work on. So try to make every single project you work on have at least the potential of doing that. And then work on a lot of projects. I mean, I think it's, it's just, I think it's just maybe as simple as that. I don't think there's any, yeah, there's no formula or. But isn't that in itself a contradiction to commit fully to every single project? And you even said like committing fully to this yeah. project went from uh, a side project, a weekend project into, you know, something close to a year. Yeah. Right. So to commit fully to it and then, but also to keep. I'm, I just, I'm a, I'm a speculator. I'm a gambler, Luke. I don't know if you know that about me, but I like to gamble and gambling has been good for me um, in that it's changed how I think about probability and expected value and the mm. idea that you want to make good bets. As long as you're making good bets, you don't focus too much on the outcome of any particular bet. You just want to make sure that overall you're making good bets. You're making smart bets. You're making interesting bets. And maybe you're hedging them so that a bunch of them are uh, low variance. And then some of them are real long shots, right? So that you have um, a few in there that could, if they do hit, be spectacular, mm. right? So as far as my advice to young creative people, it's mostly just do work do a lot of work be light in your grip like don't don't strangle everything you work on expecting it you know requiring it to be spectacular mm. but at the same time make sure that every single thing you work on has the potential to be spectacular because otherwise why bother mm. you know yeah yeah but it also sounds like if i'm understanding correctly like in terms of the paperclip game taking over a little bit I don't think having a game that's commercially successful necessarily means that you're successful, right? Like sometimes it's just about just completing a game. If that's all you need to do just to start is like just complete your game. And if this was something that was meaningful to you and it's something that you wanted to finish, 
isn't that a little bit more rewarding than spending a bunch of time on something that's like, yeah, I mean, I can probably make this, but, and it might be like a commercial success, but I'm not super proud of it. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's another hard question actually is what, what counts as success for you? Uh, for some people, success is doing something at a really high level of execution and craft that only a, a handful of people might even be capable of appreciating because it requires such a high literacy or doing something that most people have no clue about, but some small community of people appreciate really deeply or something that is influential. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if it's not successful in terms of finding a huge audience, it has an impact on people that bends their understanding and, and thereby has some larger impact downstream. And in fact, those are all examples that, for me personally of what I'm usually after. When I think of success, it's, you know, occasionally it's, it's yeah, I want to make something commercially successful that can find a big audience and, and generate revenue. But often it's, no, I want to make something that the people that I admire and, and respect would appreciate and be blown away by. <laughs> There's not one definition of what success is. And sometimes these things are, are at odds with each other. Sometimes commercial success and finding a large audience can be orthogonal to uh, doing the work that fulfills these other mm-hmm. goals that you have. Uh, but sometimes it's not, and often, often it isn't. And so this, this idea that these things are always in conflict, I think, is a persistent myth that I think hangs up a lot of people where it's like, oh, my choice is either to do great work that I'm really proud of or to do commercially successful work that generates money, but is a kind of a sellout. When in fact, often, not always, but often those things can be in total harmony. In reality, the the money part is stupid. Who cares about the money? I mean, it's nice to have money. It's great. But ultimately, uh, we all know that money is bullshit, right? Um, what matters is that the money can sometimes be a signal that other people are interested. Mm-hmm. And it's, what's important is other people and their attention and their interest and their, what they recognize as being cool enough, interesting enough, surprising or weird enough to want to give you money for. That's what can be useful and valuable about that signal. It's like not being so much in your own head that you're not kind of just like listening to the rest of the world and how it's like the currents that are moving through it and the other people there and, and sort of coordinating and, and, and thinking and collaborating and communicating with those other people. So that's the sense in which I think large scale success, commercial success can sound like the, the pursuit of that uh, can sometimes lead you to the most interesting and, and beautiful and surprising and expressive work that you do as opposed to necessarily being a trade-off. Mm-hmm. I think we should end there. I think that's a cool note to end on. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed this. Yeah, this is great. Thanks for coming yeah, by. Thank you. This is a really lovely conversation. I feel like I learned something yeah. um, about paperclips and philosophy. And uh, I need to read more. Yeah, but the, uh, <laughs> the, the friction of design there, like the, those, those constant trade-offs really speaks to me. And, and when you're aiming for you know, monetary goals or something for a game, that's one thing and that's fine. But also like acknowledging that it's okay to aim for a goal where you're like, you know what, I want to design a game for just this group of people that, that, you know, I think they're cool or I like their ideas. And so I'm going to try to, to try to plug in there and interface with them through this game. 
I think that's just a really worthy goal. And I, I think sometimes, you know, especially here in the work that we do, we get caught up in the numbers um, so often. Um, and uh, it's very easy to get caught up uh, there. But it, for me, you know, as a game designer and as someone who's guiding other game designers to success, like I, I'm, I'm having that conversation with them. Like, what is success for you? What does it mean? Yeah, who do you really want to talk to with this game? Like, who, you know, uh, at the end of the day. So, yeah, I really appreciate that. It's really meaningful. So thanks. Thank you very much. Now, don't panic, everybody, but we won't have a new episode in February. Expect us back the first week of March. And the reason for that is that there is going to be a gigantic games expo in Boston called Penny Arcade Expo East, PAX East. And Luke, Anya, and I are all going and we are all working the show. And there's going to be so much going on, uh, panels, a Kickstarter game room, and all the regular wild stuff that happens in gaming over a convention. And I'm planning to do a lot of recording over that weekend. And so in order to accommodate all of that stuff that I'll be recording that weekend, we will instead be back the first Friday in March. So until then, games friends.